Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like this to Um, <laughs> chart music. <laughs> chart music. Hey, up, you pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to part two of episode 72 of chart music here i am al needham and standing with me are simon price Shimai. and david stubbs how do chaps we've walked down 1985 street a couple of times before on chart music and yes we have been surprised every now and again by the quality of some of the tunes on offer but mm, 1985 is always going to be remembered as the year pop was expected to pitch in and solve the problems of the world instead of just being any good like it used to be a couple of years previous. Yeah, Yeah, there's a sort of debilitating earnestness, definitely, on all fronts. Mm. It's a waste of time, if you know what they mean, try shaking a box in front of the Queen, as Paul Heaton of the House Martin sang, Mm. um, about what had happened to pop um, around this time. Yeah, I mean, if you ask people what happened in 1985, you know, Live Aid's probably going to be the first thing that comes out of their mouths, or at least the only good thing after you know Heisel Valley mm. Parade all the plane crashes the Mexico City earthquake AIDS the end of the miners strike and you could say that this is a year that Pulp gets pushed into growing up and being responsible for a few years don't you think? Yeah yeah. it's also I think that um with Live Aid, it's almost like the old order returned um, to sort of see off the last vestiges of, like, post-punk and all that kind of thing, and that kind of sort of fractiousness and scrappiness. Yeah, I always think that Live Aid, in a funny kind of way, was a sort of precursor to things like Rave, then later on Oasis, this idea of us all being together. Mm. Yeah. Um, and after the kind of tribalism, the fragmentation of the 1980s. Yeah, that's the thing, you know, um, piling everybody together in a massive stadium to all watch a load of pop groups that we all agree on. Four years earlier, that would have been unthinkable you'd have had yeah, yeah. all the sort of all the mods and the teds and the skins and the rockers and so just having a massive God, fucking yeah. fight fucking hell, no, no, yes. by 85 no we'd all grown out of that and we're all together yeah yeah everyone's in their choose life t-shirts and everyone's responding to Dale from freddie and just one one big loving mm. too many florence nightingales not enough robin hoods to quote uh, the house of martins yet again mm. yeah live aid a few years previous would have been the opening scene of the warriors wouldn't it <laughs> with more parkers somebody shot bob gelder off. It was the Warriors. Come out to play, yeah. <laughs> All right then, pop craze youngsters. It is time to go way back to October of 1985. Always remember, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget they've been on top of the pops more than we have. <laughs> Thank you. 
first time to Paul John. Thanks very much indeed, Gary. Have we got a great show for you? It's seven o'clock on Thursday evening, October the 3rd, 1985, and Top of the Pops, about to broadcast its 1,123rd episode, has spent the year adopting to the choppy waters of the Michael Grade Reformations. After beginning the year ensconced in its usual post-Tomorrow's World slot, enjoying the 40 to 45 minutes it deserved, it was all changed in late February when the timescale was chopped to a rigid 30 minutes in order to accommodate the launch of EastEnders, whose first episode pulled down 13 million viewers, which wasn't that brilliant in 1985. Desperate to get his flagship drama series into the top ten of the ratings, Grade mashed up the schedule, moved EastEnders to 7pm and pulled our favourite Thursday evening pop treat up to 8 o'clock, which saw the former drop to 8 million as it was in direct competition with Emmerdale Farm and the latter lose its faction of pop-crazed extremely youngsters who needed to go to bed at a decent hour, especially on the last Thursday of of June when Top of the Pops didn't start until 8.30pm. Upset that his bi-weekly slab of cockney misery was losing viewers to rural issues, Grade shuffled the deck again, and on September the 3rd, Top of the Pops began at 7pm as the prelude to whatever was going on in Albert Square that week, a format that would stay in place for the next 11 years before it was dumped into the Friday evening schedules. Long story short, chaps, Top of the Pops has been fucked about within 1985 that's not right is it it definitely isn't and EastEnders is another thing you know like Live Aid ruined everything ruined so ruined top of the pops even Coronation Street Coronation Street felt he had to get more miserable mm. in order to kind of keep pace with EastEnders and started having kind of stupid spurious kind of character shifts and regular characters turning out to be wife beaters after about <laughs> several years you yeah. know all that kind of nonsense yeah EastEnders ruined everything mm. and top of the pops and well. it's just really thoughtless of them to hack it back to 30 minutes how are we meant to get seven hours of podcast out of a mere 30 minute television you know what i mean it can't be done absolutely yeah have i said this before i used to own michael grade's computer what yeah um when i bought my first first um personal computer in the 90s um apple macintosh lc2 i got it from a company in reading called second user mac systems who had somehow got hold of a load of old channel 4 stock uh clearly right and uh i expected all the discs to be wiped and everything but i plugged it in and started looking about and yeah uh, it had previously belonged to Michael Grade and I was like Whoa. I know I was so excited think, thinking I might find something some dirt that might uh, you know back up Chris Morris's famous uh, mm. interstitial subliminal frame that said Grade yes. is a cunt was that a screensaver? <laughs> <laughs> yeah sadly and really boringly all that was on there was uh, a load of folders with plans for Channel 4 schools programmes no I know no. I know I thought there was going to be some real juicy stuff on there but nah but yeah that's my claim to fame my link to Michael Grade. Furthermore, after 24 and a half million people in Britain sat in front of the telly for Live Aid, which was the biggest television audience of the year in the UK in 1985, it's beginning to dawn upon the television industry that folk rather like watching music TV and they want more of it, meaning that Top of the Pops is no longer the only game in town. 
The new series of Whistle Test started last Tuesday. Billy Idol, Squeeze, The Long Riders and John Parr. Channel 4 is putting out the final episode of Bliss, presented by Muriel Gray, with performances by Sade, The Cult and Jesse Ray, with King Kurt modelling the latest in cycling gear. And Soul Train, with Jeffrey Daniel introducing Loose Ends, Ashford and Simpson and The Stylistics. The new series of The Tube kicks off next Friday with Pete Townsend, Dex's Midnight Runners, Depeche Mode, The Thompson Twins and Madonna. But the big event of this week musically happened on Tuesday night on ITV when the white-hot sounds of the mid-80s clashed with the cold realities of real kids' issues. From the Daily Mirror television pages, chaps, ITV... 8pm, Elkie and Owl Gang. Song and dance show based on the day in the lives of some unemployed young people on their way to an Elkie Brooks concert. (laughs) (laughs) They amuse themselves with various routines from ballet to breakdancing and on their travels meet Gemma Craven and American singer Sam Harris. Chaps, you know I've wasted so much of my valuable time trying to source a video of this, but sadly to no avail but would you care to guess where it was set not in (laughs) him well I automatically assume Liverpool because everything on the telly about unemployment was set there in the eggs but yes Simon I was fucking appalled to discover that the gig was filmed at Central's Lenton Lane Studios in Nottingham the home of Bullseye and the Price is Right fucking hell man the cradle of pop delivers once again (laughs) who thought that the unemployed youths of the 80s craved Elkie Brooks yeah this is the reality of it everyone thinks they must have been sort of you know, mm. going to see the, the Style Council or something, you know, a band who would yeah. show solidarity with their plight. But no, it was Elkie Brooks. No, and they want Pearl's a singer. Yeah, and, and, and all her looks. <laughs> yeah. So your hosts this evening are Gary Davis, who's still holding down the early afternoon slot between Simon Bates and Steve Wright, and is still recovering from Radio 1's 18th birthday party three days ago. Chaps, <laughs> would you care to guess we're such a prestigious this event was held. What, the 18th birthday party? Uh, oh, I don't know. Kettering. <laughs> it was actually a garage in Cumbria. Oh, what right. the fuck? Okay. Article in the Daily Mirror two days ago, Girls Radio Wonderful Party in a garage. <laughs> Teenage Rachel Miller threw an 18th birthday party yesterday and Radio 1 turned up. Rachel was born on September the 30th, 1967, the day Radio 1 was launched. So when she invited the station to a coming-of-age party, the BBC sent disc jockey Gary Davis to broadcast his midday show live from her garage. (laughs) Late-night DJ John Peel also joined the party. (laughs) Rachel from Colbrecht, Cumbria said, When I sent the invitation, I never thought they would accept it. It was really wonderful. I don't know how I'm going to cap it on my 21st birthday. 50 guests dance in Rachel's garage as DJ Gary broadcast the show. He said it was a knockout, just like a real party. 
John Peel was even more delighted, for Colbeck was the home of the legendary huntsman John Peel. I was shocked to see the local pub named after me, he said. <laughs> Fucking hell, BBC, chucking the money about, just on a whim. Yeah, and if I was born five days later, that could have been me. Gary Davis, I mean, he looks absolutely basic. He looks like he's sort of fallen asleep in the <laughs> in the tanning land. This is his first top of the pop since his extended holiday, and by the look of that tan, it, it seems like he's spent a fortnight on the planet Mercury. <laughs> Absolutely. He looks like he's been carved from a block of Oxo. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's over-ridgelid, yeah. I think the term of the time was. Yeah, over-ridgelid. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you what it reminds me of. Reminds me, you know, back in... Yeah, you used to get this quite a few times in the 70s and 80s. You'd occasionally get these white tabloid journalists or even TV reporters going undercover <laughs> to find out what it, was, what it was really like to be a black person in Britain today. And they'd adopt this ludicrously unconvincing black face. You could even see a bit of the white sometimes, you know, between the shirt and their oh neck. Oh, my God. And, you know, of course, they wander around getting very funny looks. And he, yeah, he look, kind of looks like that, really. Yeah. <laughs> Black like Gary. Or they'd be putting a tea towel on their heads and trying to sort of um, yeah. trick Bruce Grobbler into accepting a bribe or something. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when Beadle yeah. was an oil sheet. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yes. This is his 26th go at presenting Top of the Pops, and he's become a permanent fixture in a talent pool which currently features Peter Powell, Mike Smith, Steve Wright, Dixie Peach, Mike Reed, and Simon Bates. And there's a new addition to the pool this week. Born in London in 1959, Paul Jordan spent his university years dividing his time between reading law and working in hospital radio. And just before his final year of passing the bar at Grey's Inn, he decided to jack it in and make a go of becoming a DJ. After sending a demo tape off to various stations, he was contacted by Radio City, the independent station for Liverpool and surrounding area, who were looking for a new DJ after Janice Long had departed. And by 1982, he was holding down the graveyard shift on City for three months, eventually moving to the late night slot and finally bedding down in the 6pm to 9pm slot by 1984. Advert in the Liverpool Echo, February 1984. Wind down to the best sounds around. <laughs> Paul Jordan, 6 to 9. Essential listening for people who are really into today's music scene. Starting with the charts, Paul goes on to explore fringe music, especially from local bands, pop news, top 10 videos, and all the latest film reviews. Plus, scoop into Interviews with pop stars. Miss it if you dare. Fucking hell. Interviewing local Liverpool bands in 1984. He must have sniffed around Frankie's crotch a few times. <laughs> By 1985, he started to make a play for the top of the mountain and started sending demo tapes to Radio One. And at the third attempt, he was signed up, beginning his career at the station on July the 1st of this year, filling in for Gary Davis while he was doing the Radio One roadshow. The following week, he filled in for Adrian John at the 6am to 8am slot and spent the rest of the summer bouncing around the weekday schedule as a de facto holiday cover, including two weeks in Janice Long's chair, before bedding down last Sunday in the 2.30 slot, taking over from Steve Wright, and will be beginning a regular 3pm stint on Fridays tomorrow. So, chaps, it appears to be only a matter of time before he becomes a big part of Radio 
Radio 1 and this is his debut appearance on Top of the Pops. Yeah, but it's so weird, isn't it? I... I'd, n- mm. I'd never heard of the geezer. No. He doesn't even have a wiki page. That's ridiculous. I mean, talk about Radiohead's how to disappear completely. I mean, talk about mm. being unperson, you know, airbrushed out of history. I mean, just wonder mm. who knows did he put out a joint? You know, what did he eventually do that was, you know, so sordid, so unforgivable that even 1980s Top of the Pops presenters couldn't abide to have him in their ranks? I thought that when I was doing research on previous chart music since his name turned up, I just yeah. thought, ooh, what did he do? Yeah. So I can just imagine, actually, if he, go, you know, if he went down to actually investigate all this you know if I'd actually gone down to BBC Television Centre and asked about you know Paul Jordan and being gaslit by the senior receptionist mm. Paul Jordan there is no Paul Jordan and there has never been a Paul Jordan <laughs> but you know why don't you look in the database you just have to get there is no point in my looking on the database because there is no Paul Jordan and there never has been a Paul Jordan at the British Broadcasting Corporation <laughs> do I make myself clear but I would advise you to leave the building Mr Stubbs with immediate effect no, it's just, mm. it's just extraordinary, yeah, but, really. I mean, it's, you know, the, the, the mystery. Mm. It's a mystery, as somebody said. Yeah, I mean, I'd absolutely never heard of him either. And, you know, this was an era where I had very little else to do um, other than sort of, you know, watch Top of the Pops and listen to Radio 1. So it, mm. it's bizarre how he's faded from not just my consciousness, but it seems everybody's, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I know he only did Top of the Pops six times, but six is enough to leave some kind of impression, mm. you know. Both the presenters here, there's, a, there's an interesting dynamic. They both look well sort of Miami Vice with their looks. Oh, yeah. And uh, Paul Jordan's winning the battle of the sleeve push. (laughs) Most definitely. But he does have this energy of a sort of competition winner, of somebody who's just kind of looked their way into being there. Because the thing with Gary Davis at this point, he's a safe pair of hands by now. He's he's slick and confident, crucially, and professional. Mm. The thing with Paul Jordan is, when you see people in any walk of life who are nervous, it makes you nervous. Yes. And I got that instantly from him. Him. He's trying too hard. He's got, and it's it's interesting that you you say he sort of w- was a guy who, who would stand in when Janice Long or whoever went on their holidays because he does mm. have this kind of supply teacher energy about. Yes, him. but it's like yeah. it's a sort of trendy, the trendy supply teacher. So like <laughs> every time he goes woo or way whatever, it sounds really forced, you know. Mm. And he does this thing, you know, uh, apart from the sleeve push, which I guess everyone did because it was fashionable at the time. He puts his hand in his pockets it's it's as if he sort of you know thought what are the signifiers of being the cool kid that i can do yeah it's like i always used to crack up at um everyone saying eric Cantona was so cool right mm. because to me <laughs> what he'd done Cantona was he popped the collar of his football shirt like he thought he was the fonz hmm. you know <laughs> and, <laughs> and everyone thought oh he's so cool but i just thought that's such a kind of french person's idea of what being cool means is like turning up your mm. collar and yeah paul jordan's a bit like that yeah he's sort of like you know He's, his, his sleeves are rolled up he's got his hands in his pocket he's sort of slouching in a kind of slightly kind of insolent cool way and and all, all the way through it's it's just trying really hard to be yeah. down with the kids and he's only 26 but something about that trying too hard mm. makes him seem older than he actually is like an old person yeah. trying to be cool you know what I mean and 26 in yeah. 1985 was probably about 32 in a sense really yeah oh mm. if, uh, at least yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but yeah Jordan as, as a DJ, he's definitely in that young guy who's really into his music vein that's currently in vogue at Radio 1. And, you know, him and Dixie Peach, the other new recruit of the era, have, they've already nudged out Richard Skinner from the lineup, and it's Mike Reed's turn to fuck off next. But as far as Jordan goes, he, even though he's been on the same career path, he's clearly no Janice Long. <laughs> 
Well, it's interesting you say, like, young guy who's really into his music. I mean, did you get that from him? Because I think we've both listened to the same audio uh, interview that, that mm. is out there with oh, him. Oh, that's the look. That's the image that uh, um, Radio 1 want to portray of people like him and Davis. But yeah, you're right, Simon. There's an interview of him floating about. And he seems like a perfectly nice bloke, you know. But he's a careerist DJ, isn't he? Well, this is it. To me, he shares that fatal flaw that so many of the Radio 1 lot uh, had, which is that he loves radio radio more than he loves music and he loves the idea of being mm. a presenter more than he loves music yes. i'm sure mm. he was into his music as well but for him it you know it does seem to, to be all about the airwaves and all that kind of stuff yeah rather than the, the sounds that he's playing i think it's mm. almost a prerequisite that you're not really into the music that much you know otherwise that shunts you towards the kind of the evening slot or even yeah the graveyard slot mm. you know? in some ways i don't mind him not being this kind of strutting alpha male you know, because mm. we've had plenty of those on Top of the Pops, yeah. and they are monstrous, you know. And I'm sure I would rather spend a couple of hours in the pub with Paul Jordan than with Dave Lee Travis. Do you Ooh. know what I mean? Would you sooner see Paul Jordan play Macbeth, though? <laughs> <laughs> but sadly, um, the way that these kind of alpha male bullies like Travis hold down their job is by their completely unearned confidence that they have. Yeah. And someone like Jordan, who just doesn't seem to have it, was probably never going to hold down that, that position in quite the same way. <laughs> for the very first time to Paul Jordan. Thanks very much indeed, Gary. Have we got a great show for you tonight? We've got a wonderful show. We have Cameo, we have Iron Maiden, we also have Renee and Angela, and a brand new number one. But first to get us underway, a superb song at number 10 in the charts. Here is Colonel Abrams and Trap. <laughs> The syndromes pound, the TV screen flies through the ionosphere and the pink vinyl explodes to reveal Davis in an appalling light grey suit with sleeves rolled and American football-like shoulder pads welcomes us to our Thursday evening pop treat and then introduces his YTS lad Jordan who's wearing a huge flimsy black and grey jacket over a white t-shirt with the sleeves rolled up even more. Jordan runs down some of the Bill of Fare on tonight in a manner more suited to blokes in flat caps and gilets selling sets of crockware in the market and then pumps his fist and goes way as Davis announces Trapped by Colonel Abrams. Born in Detroit in 1949, Colonel Abrams, yes, that's his real name, was relocated to New York in his teens, where he learned guitar and piano and won an amateur night at the Harlem Apollo. After a spell in the funk band Heavy Impact in the mid-70s, he started his own group, Conservative Manor, in 1976, before relocating to Minneapolis and becoming the lead singer of the funk band 94th Street until they split up in 1979 due to their guitarist getting a solo deal. He moved back to New York, got involved in the post-disco scene and linked up with the WBLS DJ Timothy. Registered. And in 1984, they recorded an eight track demo which included the song Release the Tension, which absolutely blew up across the clubs of the five boroughs and beyond, even though it wasn't available in any shops and a cover was released by someone else. Um 
unperturbed, he landed a deal with Streetwise Records and recorded another set of demos, including Music is the Answer. But it was this track which got his contract bought out by MCA, who, after throwing loads of different producers at him, including Sarone, finally linked him up with Richard Burgess. Yes, mm. Mr. Einstein, a go-go himself. Yeah. After ripping through the clubs of America and getting to number one in the Billboard Dance Club songs chart, it was put out over here, entering the charts at number 95 in early August and took five weeks to get to number 34. The following week, after it jumped six places to number 28, some city farm wankers did the Thatcherite stride to it at the end of that week's Top of the Pops, which helped it jump another six places to number 16. This week, after yet another six-place jump, it's at number 10, and here he is, fresh off the plane, making his official Top of the Pops debut. And it's got to be said, looking like he's got a telegram to deliver to someone, (laughs) as he's sporting that non-more 1985 garment, the bolero jacket, Mm. beloved of Christopher Dean and Les Dennis, that's festooned with gold braid around the shoulders and sleeves, and adorned with golden buttons it's quite the look isn't it yeah i i think uh, you know it's meant to be a sort of visual pun on his military name mm. yes indeed yeah there's lots of scrambled egg yeah yeah i mean you know he's got the epaulets the brocade brass buttons i thought it was a play on the colonel thing mm. but to me he looks more like a bellboy in an upscale yes. hollywood hotel <laughs> i actually think it looks kind of amazing in, in his he's got these pleated trousers and this cab calloway mustache and uh, mm. and he's never not doing something if he's not singing he's sort of windmilling his wrists around in a sort of come and get it you cunts kind of way you know or he's yes. or he's, he's sort of bunny hopping up and down on the spot during an instrumental yeah. break or, or whatever mm. everything's very literal i think you know the jacket and how you know he's on a small podium he literally is trapped he's he's surrounded by the yeah. city farm wankers you know and you know mm. just general audience members who are going mental by the way they're loving this oh yes in, they fucking love it in, don't they in their very british hand clappy very much not soul train sort of way you know what i mean mm. and yeah there's lots of weird camera angles shot from his waist height up chin or up nose as it were like <laughs> like a sort of blowjob pov but from the pov of the giver not the receiver because <laughs> you know yeah this is his big moment uh mm. but I, I remember when he was just lieutenant abrams you know and, uh, and yes. uh, i watched him push up the ranks captain abrams major abrams and, and here he is colonel at last we thought he could push on and become a brigadier maybe even a major general but it wasn't mm. to be and listen right if you think that's a shit joke just be grateful <laughs> that i abandoned a whole riff based on colonel with a c being a homonym of colonel with a k meaning seed um there was kind of yeah. there was nothing there. Mm. but it is confusing though right because th- there wasn't just one other colonel abrams there were two right during the first right. gulf war in uh, 1991 the u.s oh. army had two colonel abrams um yes. colonel john n abrams and colonel robert b abrams both of whom went on to greater things but in the first gulf war it's well documented what happened to american soldiers who were made prisoners of war under the supervision of uh, odai hussein saddam's son uh, they were subjected mm. to starvation mock executions mock castration 
castrations and chemical injections, as well as brutal beatings. God, how can you mock a castration? I know, yeah, that's... Yeah, that's uh... I know, and they, they were made to appear on TV, every, famously, you know, battered and bruised, denouncing uh, American war policy while blinking mm. out the word torture in Morse code. Yeah. However, the Allies themselves took 69,000 Iraqi prisoners of war, and it's less well-documented what happened to them. Fancy that. Yeah, although Human Rights Watch expressed concern that the US Army was reneging on its obligations uh, under the Geneva Convention in terms of their treatment. And let's not kid ourselves, we know what happens when the Americans take prisoners of war, especially in Iraq. But I like to think Mm. that at least some of them somewhere around Al-Basaya, perhaps, in the Al-Mathana province, just over the border from Kuwait, were under the watchful eye of either Colonel John N. Abrams or Colonel Robert B. Abrams, and they were able to heckle their captors. Hey, Colonel Mm. Abrams, I'm trapped. I'm like a man in a cage. (laughs) I would love to think that happened. There's a lot of confusion around this song, as we'll Mm. dip into later on, and the singer, particularly his name. So let's go back to that interview with Simon Witter in this week's NME, uh, where he said, before I made it in music, I used to work in a personnel office, and people would come in and say, I spoke to you on the phone, but when I heard Colonel Abrams, I thought you'd be an old man in glasses. (laughs) They expected me to look like the guy from Kentucky Fried Chicken. In fact... I was asked to attend the opening of a KFC joint in New Jersey, but I didn't want to. And one photographer wanted me to pose with a rifle. Mm. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. There we go. What he should have done, he should have mashed up uh, Colonel Sanders and Father Abraham of the Smurfs <laughs> and turned up looking like that. Mm. Yeah. Which is just basically Father Abraham with but with some glasses and, a, yeah. and one of them stringy tie things. A far-right chicken pimp, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> the same thing struck me, you know, as it did Simon, you know, Great Vines and all that. The same thing with Colonel Abrams as it did Colonel Gaddafi. If you're going to make yourself out for the big man, the top man, you know, why don't you just go for the top rank? I mean, if you're Colonel Gaddafi, yeah. you're outranked by your generals, then there's going to be a bit of a shit dictator. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's like, so Colonel Abrahams is outranked by the Funkadelic Associate General Kane, you know. So if General Kane got some top of the <laughs> Yeah, or General Johnson. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to salute him, you know. It's, it's a bit weird. Just, you know, just like you say, just call him Field Marshal Abrams. Major Lance. Yes. yes. But then again, but that that logic, like King, as in love and pride, outranks Prince. You know, so it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was quite work. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as, as regards the song, I mean, I was I was eating this sort of transatlantic electric funk for breakfast. Oh, I think this is a fucking tune, breakfast, mate. Yeah, I ne- yeah. 1985 is mint. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm afraid I'm yeah I'm slightly less enthusiastic about it myself personally. No. Sorry. Well, you know, I get that way, and then you can sing its praises. And uh, oh, I, I guess I think it's not good enough for you. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> I can tell no. by the way you act and your attitude, David. <laughs> no, but when I wasn't dipping into a bit of Stockhausen or Sunrise, it was it was this sort of little fair. But, um, you know, so I was all set when I was first listening to this, and I'd have sat there and waited patiently for something to happen, you know, a sort of explosion, a little release, a sort of an ejaculation. But for me, it's just a bit stiff. You know, it just sort of robo-twitches inside this sort of self-imposed straitjacket. I mean, obviously, you know, it's called Trapped, I guess, you know, that's the idea. And I mean, and I know mm. Prince was doing this sort of minimalistic thing at this time, but things happen with Prince and for me it just doesn't hear it's like a sort of moonwalk minus 
the walk and the moon you know <laughs> i'm kind of stunned here i thought david was going to love this record i really did yes me too yeah no i did as well when i first started off, i thought oh, yeah this is this is for me and it just something just doesn't quite click on it for me you know what it is for me yeah. right i i think people talk a load of revisionist self-aggrandizing bullshit about house music okay nowadays mm. you get british people who pretend they were completely across what larry levan was doing at paradise garage what frankie knuckles was doing mm. in the warehouse what the belleville three were doing everybody is basically the person james murphy from lcd sound system is addressing in losing my edge everybody claiming they owned don't make me wait by the peach boys in 1982 on an import right everyone claiming they had their fingers did you david yes i did oh yeah. for fuck's sake well i suppose yeah all right a fiver is spent on that. I mean, that was a fiver a proper fiver yeah. back in 1982 well yeah. everyone likes to to be you know make out nowadays that they had their fingers on the pulse of new york and chicago and detroit bollocks all right david did but most people didn't right if if they're mm-hmm. honest the first house music most people heard in the uk was love can't turn around by farley jackmaster funk featuring daryl pandy yeah. which was number 10 in september 86 and the thing that mm. softened us up to make us receptive to that wasn't Derek may or whoever it was this kind of thing it was love yes love can't turn around was a hit because of things like this coming first true it's, it's proto house really yeah true and I think, yeah. have you heard release attention simon no oh it's housey as fuck this is um Kern Abrams, another track, right? Yeah. Recorded in 1984, and you just listen to it and go, ooh, fucking hell. Right. Here's the foundations of the house, if you will. And stuff like this, stuff like Trapped, is what I was dancing to at the aforementioned Feathers Disco at Barry Island, and mm. the other one, Tramps, at the land end of the causeway. And I, I mentioned that I had this little gang of mates in the sixth form at Barry Boys, and we all went to house parties together. That's house with a small H. But, um, <laughs> but, but we also went to Feathers and Tramps together, and there was me, there was my mate neil who's a listener to the pod hello neil hey neil there was richie and there was symes um, the problem was i was also called symes so uh, we oh. needed some form of disambiguation um and simon bates yeah yeah did you really let yourself be called Simon? yeah yeah Simon's. yeah i mean it was, it was partly inspired by simon bates i suppose it's a bit of a piss take of that but <laughs> okay. so right. you know i i called him symes he tried to call me symesy or symesy baby right um mm. but it never stuck um perhaps thankfully there was a half-hearted effort on my part to call him big symes and me little symes but that was never going to fly because i'm not li- i'm six foot you know yeah. he's six foot six so it should have been Ooh. big symes and one inch above average height symes over here but anyway mm. the thing is there's this gang of us we all had very different tastes in music in terms of what we were listening to at home there was a, a ghetto blaster in the sixth form common room and you know everybody's sort of trying to fight over what tapes got played on it and i was into the smiths and the cure and um neil was into scritty politty and howard jones richie was into u2 i think and symes was into springsteen the one common denominator was that we all love prince but when, mm. when we all went out to travel or feathers all that went out the window all your kind of tribal things all the stuff you cared about and you know that that was your musical dna it kind of just just flew out the window and we were just happy dancing to stuff like like trapped so there Mm. was this Mm. and there was we don't have to by jermaine stewart um there was let the music play by shannon there was that uh, that is a tune ain't nothing going on but the rent by gwen guthrie also tune and sometimes i'd pester sammy black who was the local dj to play something by the cult selfishly 
but that that would clear the dance floor you know that would clear the dance floor yeah. this this is the stuff everyone fucking loved and when oh yeah when morrissey comes along and goes burn down the disco hang the blessed dj because the music mm. they constantly play it says nothing to me about my life even as a smiths fan i thought fuck off the music they constantly play doesn't have to say something to me about my life it cheers me up right no. it's possible to be a miserable teenage indie fan six days a week but put your shiny dancing shoes on and go out on a friday and have some fun so mm. uh, i absolutely love this record and so did all of my friends mm. you've touched upon something there Simon, because we we need to remember that in 1985 this sort of thing would have been lads music you know what I mean? All the rough arse use I knew at school wouldn't be listening to indie guitar rubbish or whatever the equivalent of Oasis was in 1985. They'd be getting the chinos on, piling into Chivago's or Barry Noble's Astoria and shaking their asses to this. I mean, it wouldn't be until, I don't know, the Happy Mondays came along that the lads started drifting towards that end of the spectrum. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting because this sort of music was also considered music for girls or perhaps that was a, li- a yeah. little bit later on when Sort of handbag house came like that that pejorative term handbag house that all the girls be dancing mm. on their handbags but i guess above all it was music for normals it was music for you know just yeah. your, your ordinary townies. Kids, townies yeah um and the thing is it was superior music for normals mm. this was an era when when the stuff that your normals went to feathers and tramps were dancing to was fucking brilliant and this mm. record it just fucking kicks ass the producer you mentioned it was uh, you know richard burgess einstein Gogo. you wouldn't necessarily expect him to come out with something with this much funk to it although he mm. did produce um spandau ballet uh, chart number one paint me down so right. he, he got the funk as well it might not be the most obvious person to produce a, tr- a track like this yeah but yeah I, th- I, th- I think it's an amazing record um very strange lyrics though eh? god yeah He's, he says that he doesn't want her folks to turn him over to the hands of the law what's he mm. done yeah. what have you done colonel abrams what have you done mm. he's 36 yeah. here so why is he bothered about what her mum and dad think yeah, yeah. fuck him mm. i mean if he wants legal representation fortunately paul jordan is right there <laughs> <laughs> but yeah there's definitely some kind of backstory to this song what it's like it's like it's part of a bigger piece like you imagine it's part of some kind of opera or some yes. kind of concept album like you know keith west's excerpt from a teenage opera or something like that that mm. you know if, if you hear the whole thing you know why he's running from the hands of the law and there's all that thing you know if you think i can afford to support you if you want to ever think about ever settling down yeah he's the one who wants to get trapped because you think the song's trapped it's like oh i've got my girlfriend pregnant i'm fucked yeah i've got to get married but no he's the one who wants to settle down yeah Mm. you alluded in your intro to the guitarist in his former band who went on to greater things Mm, this is a bit of a myth um someone in the press department of mca has played a fucking blinder here because um Mm. we're talking about prince obviously uh perhaps not obviously but colonel abram's connection to prince is minimal um apart from also having a first name that is a rank or title but it's actually his real name what what happened was there was a funk band in the mid 70s in minneapolis called 94 east yeah and uh, they were led by a guy called pepe willie um who was married to prince's cousin and was a sort of mentor figure to to prince and to, and to andre simone and, and all the other minneapolis funk musicians and 94 east's lineup at various times included prince uh, andre simone matt fink dr fink and bobby z all later members of the revolution of course yeah the only recording 
thing that 94 East made with Colonel Abrams was uh, a couple of tracks for a single called Fortune Teller in 1977, which was written by one of the Motown backing band, the Funk Brothers, Hank Cosby. And by the time that was recorded, Prince had already left and was working on his first album, For You. But according to Matt Thorne's uh, Prince biography, what happened was that uh, Prince just ran into Pepe Willie and said, oh, you know, yeah, I'll I'll play a bit of guitar on, on this track for you. Also, according to um, Pepe Willie himself in, in the other Prince book uh, by Dave Hill, A Pop Life, mm. the two never actually met. Right. So Prince played his guitar in the studio separately to Colonel Abrams recording his vocals. And by the way, I've got about a dozen books on Prince and I looked through all of them to research this. Only two of them even mentioned Colonel Abrams in the index. Right. Um, the mm. single never actually got released because the deal they had with Polydor fell through. So for that very tenuous Prince connection to get mentioned, uh, as it does in this episode of Top the Pops, in fact, just <laughs> just makes you think that, yeah, someone at MCA uh, is working overtime and, and deserves a pay rise. Funny you should say that, Simon, because in next week's Daily Mirror White Top Club, there's the this headline, Colonel's Rocket. Oh. Hit singer Colonel Abrams has launched a blistering attack on his old pal Prince. He has a dreadful voice and no sense of style, says the good Colonel, whose song Trapped is at number four. He once played in the same band as Prince and claims, man, he couldn't sing. I had to do it all. Fucking hell, that's some severe over egg. Yeah, I mean, come on, this shows that I was right, isn't it? Come on, he's bogus. (laughs) Him saying that he was in the same band as Prince is a bit like uh, anybody in the current uh, Blackpool FC squad saying they were in the same football team as Stanley Matthews. Yeah, and then saying he was shit. (laughs) And I had to do everything. Mm, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had to do all the dribbling for yes. him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Top of the Pops is relatively new neon set, working to full effect here, you have to say. Yeah, it's yeah. essentially recreating what Colonel Abrams must be doing all over the country right now. It's, it's a PA, mm. a sparsely attended but comfortable nightclub. You know, he's standing on a black circular platform surrounded by the kids on the floor and members of City Farm on site. He's short of plimps. And, and the only disappointment appointment I had from this performance is that there's some nubby white stripes around the colonel's plinth that makes it look like he's on a trampoline and when he starts doing that weird little skipping dance you think oh fucking hell he's gonna start doing some proper somersaults any minute now but <laughs> alas no mm. well there you are you see there aren't the somersaults I mean you're not easily pleased David you expect somersaults from your <laughs> proto house singers yeah metaphorical somersaults Jeez, you know he's, yeah. he's giving it loads he's even grabbing his wrist David yeah. what more do you yeah. want yeah. to indicate how trapped he is <laughs> yeah true the thing is um yeah it is quite housey sounding from this distance because mm. it's got that sort of synth the, the top line of the synth the da, 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 that's quite housey mm. it's quite busy though rhythmically it's quite busy and that's what makes it not house mm. i think yeah. i think it's, it's only yeah. when things get stripped down and boiled to the very basics you know mm. or basics that you you actually get to what house music is but all the elements are here really yeah richard burgess has added a bit of high energy hasn't mm. he with the stabby yeah. synths yeah it's quite stabby yeah. it doesn't have the house 
cadence, but it. Um, but I sense. I think what Simon says no. has a point actually about the sort of the straightness of it, the linearness of it. You know, perhaps preparing people for house. Yeah, that enemy interview we alluded to earlier. They're, they're clearly painting him as the next in the line of soul mm. men. When yeah, you're right. He is a house pioneer, and I'd go as far to say is that we as a public are being house trained in this uh, <laughs> performance. Don't you think? Yes. yes. The other thing that was in that enemy interview uh, that you read earlier was that people kept comparing him to Luther Vandross and mm. Teddy Pendergrass and people like that. Um, I actually listened to a radio interview with Colonel Abrams from 1987, right. um, where he acknowledged both those influences, but he said he was more influenced by female singers like Nancy Wilson, the Supremes and Dionne Warwick. But mm. he also said that he thought singers like him had a duty to be a male role model, um, which meant he comes out with quite a lot of unreconstructed mm. stuff like you can look good without looking feminine and uh, you can be the head of the household always kind of like mm. you know strong black mm. man kind of rhetoric mm. which is kind of interesting um, I, I found in another interview for a TV interview this time from 92 by which time he's claiming to have been one of the inventors of house music you know mm. inventor you know that's, that's nah, a that's, bit of a yeah. stretch you know, mm. even I'll say that um, and he now considered himself by 92 to be part of acid jazz interestingly mm. right and he was saying he's added a new aggression to his music which he thought was gonna you know finally make him uh, break through and be a star in the u.s uh, listener it didn't yeah mm. but it's interesting that in the uk we went fucking crazy for this stuff yes you know, we did this was number three you know number three in the proper charts half yes. a million copies sold but in america you know stuff like this just you, c- you couldn't get arrested well no. ironically you know <laughs> or even court martial yes yeah 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 <laughs> i've often wondered why it is that great black american pop struggles or has struggled historically to chart in the proper billboard charts and i i I don't know if it's just to do with how the charts were compiled over there because surely Mm. you know the african-american population must have been buying stuff like this in fairly significant numbers is it just not getting registered uh by by billboard or or, or is it you know sort of segregated off and sort of lumped into their their r&b chart or their dance chart or, or whatever or is it that records like this were selling through shops which by their very nature were segregated whereas in this country yeah you know maybe in cities like london birmingham manchester there might have been kind of black music specialist shops but mostly people were just buying this stuff from your local hmv or your local woolworths yeah. once it's charted i don't know you got any mm. theories on that yeah uh, we're skill and americans are twats <laughs> <laughs> yeah i need to work on that a bit more but you know that's that's the basic crux of it isn't it yeah it's, yeah. it's interesting though we, we can sort of slap ourselves on the back uh, a bit sometimes where we look at the chart positions of these what to us seem like classic tracks and mm. and, and you see that they absolutely fucking bombed but it even goes back to the 70s things like i don't know um odyssey or, or well that's more the early 80s but limmy and family cooking that we talked about before yeah stuff that just did nothing in this state and i suppose radio stations have got something to do with it you know we didn't have black radio stations in the 70s and 80s no radio wasn't segregated so if something like this was getting played it was getting played to everyone it yeah. wasn't sort of being racially profiled and you know yeah. and sort of um ghettoized as it were in in, in radio terms and and marketing terms and everything else so the following week trapped made its fourth sixth place jump on the bounce getting to number four and the week after that it began a three-week stand at number three spending seven weeks in the top ten 
His next dent upon the charts came at the end of the year when Streetwise Records released Music is the Answer over here, but it only got to number 84 in November. But the official follow-up, The Truth, only made it to number 53 the following month. He'd get back into the top 40 when I'm not going to let you made it to number 24 in March of 1986, but his last MCA release in the UK, the painfully apt How Soon We Forget, only got to number 74 for two weeks in August of 1987, and he never troubled the charts again. And sadly, he dropped off the radar until a GoFundMe crowdfund was started for him in 2015 as he was homeless and suffering from diabetes and he died a year later at the age of 67. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In six foot three inches tall, comes from New York. Used to be in the band with Prince, Super, Colonel Abrams, and Trap. Right now, here's the highest new entry in the chart this week, straight in at number 20 for Iron Maiden. Davis! On his own in front of some poncy 80s ironmongre tells us about the Colonel Abrams Prince lie before pitching us straight into Running Free by Iron Maiden. Formed in Leighton in 1975, Ash Mountain were a group put together by the bassist Steve Harris who told him that his band name was shit and they wanted to be called Iron Maiden instead. After they played their first gig at St Nick's Hall in Poplar in May of 1976, they took up a residency at the Carton Horses in Stratford and underwent myriad line-up changes, with band members being sacked for not having enough on-stage charisma, pretending to be in Kiss and coughing up fake blood during gigs, getting the arse about the band recruiting a keyboard player, being that keyboard player and it not suiting the band, and pretending to play guitar with their teeth, which led the band to split up at the end of the year. In early 1977, however, Harris and the guitarist Dave Murray decided to have another go, finally completing the lineup when their new drummer Doug Sampson recommended Paul Andrews, a hotel chef who changed his name to Paul Diano to play up his Italian heritage as lead singer. 
After recording a four-song demo, they passed it on to Neil Kay, who ran a disco in the back room of a pub in North London called the Bandwagon Heavy Metal Soundhouse, who was so taken by it that he listed one of the tracks from it, Prowler, at number one in his Soundhouse chart, which was published every week by Sounds. After the tape crossed the desk of Rod Smallwood, a student gig promoter who managed Steve Holly and Cockney Rebel for a while, he expressed an interest in managing them and set up two pub gigs. Although the first one fell through when the band didn't fancy playing so early in the evening and they had to play the second one without Diano because he'd been arrested outside for showing off with his knife in front of a copper. <laughs> Undeterred, Smallwood encouraged them to set up their own label and put out their demo, with the run of 5,000 copies selling out immediately, which led to record company interest and eventual deal with EMI, who immediately put two of their tracks on the compilation LP Metal for Mothers and catapulted them to the forefront of the new wave of British heavy metal. At the same time, their debut single, This Tune, was put out and it entered the charts at number 46, leading to the band being immediately rushed into the top of the pop studio, sandwiched between Carrie by Cliff Richard and Coward of the County by Kenny Rogers, which helped it get up to number 34. By mid-1981, after the band had notched up three more top 40 hits and were midway through a world tour, Diano had become a proper custard gannet and the rest of the band decided to knob him off and replace him with the former frontman of Samson, Bruce Dickinson, which propelled Maiden to a run of six top 20 hit singles in a row and three top three LPs, including Number of the Beast, which spent two weeks atop the LP chart in April of 1982. This single, a cover of their debut and the follow-up to Aces High, which got to number 20 in November of 1984, is the lead-off cut from their next LP, Live After Death, which comes out next week and was recorded in Long Beach, California and Hammersmith Odeon during the World Slavery Tour, which started in Warsaw in August of 1984 and ended in California in July of 85. The band preferred the Hammersmith version, but according to Bruce Dickinson, the lighting engineer had a cob on with the film crew and deliberately made the lights too dim to render any shooting usable, so they had a go with what we're seeing here, because video rules the music industry these days. It's thudded into the chart this week at number 20, this week's highest new entry, and here they are, getting some American lads worked up. Mm. So, chaps, the World Slavery Tour, 331 days, 189 gigs, 25 countries, four continents. Apparently, there were going to be some dates in South Africa, but they were cancelled by the South Africans who objected to the word slavery. <laughs> Loads of cash rates in one very knackered band who have taken the rest of the year off hence them putting this out as a stopgap and a prelude to the live album mm. apparently after um bruce dickinson's first big european tour with iron maiden he suffered a real bout of depression because all of his dreams had been fulfilled it was a, mm. I, I was reading andrew o'neill's book the history of heavy metal and he compares it to alexander the great weeping because there were no worlds left to conquer mm. yeah. yeah like paul jordan yeah <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My mate Andrew, the, the metaler that I've talked Ooh. about before, um, uh, that's Andrew who lived next door, not Andrew who was a member of the Mary Brennell Boys Murder with me. Um, <laughs> he had that album, Metal for Mothers, but the thing is, we didn't know what that meant, so we no. thought it was Metal for Muthas. <laughs> and I said to him, who's Muthas then? And he said, mm. I don't know, just somebody called Muthas. Sounds um, like a Doctor Who villain. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm. Oh, God, Iron fucking Maiden. The, I've got to mm. say, we, we've had some metal bands on chart music before. I've really enjoyed, you know, watching Twisted Sister and Motorhead and things mm. like that. This has put me in a really bad mood about heavy metal. Ooh. Yeah, it's just sort of made me revert to my sort of not that deeply buried view that heavy metal is just fucking stupid, you know. <laughs> it's just sort of thwarted masculinity it's power fantasies for inadequate teenage boys you know mm. it's it's all about male heroism and people will sort of scream in disagreement about this but for me heavy metal is very right wing i mean there's literally you know quite a lot of far right stuff going on in the world of metal but i just mean there's something inherently right wing about this music that that is based around fantasies of power mm. in, in this song okay dickinson didn't write it it's, it's a paul diano song but yeah you know, it's it's about you know this 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 16 year old who's sort of you know is running free and it's so oh god this american bullshit man the american mm. bullshit in the lyrics just 16 a pickup truck you know how fucking pickup trucks in east london no. <laughs> you know apparently paul diano wrote this about when he was a skinhead right this is a skinhead song it's hersham boys yeah with more hair <laughs> a skinhead who somehow got a pickup truck and is hitting the gas and ends mm. up in an la jail for fuck's sake maybe a latent mm. jail <laughs> yeah mm. the thing with maiden to me right is that i don't know if you ever read those war comics as a child mm. you know like they were kind of a5 sized uh, things like oh, commando yeah yeah and it's you know it's all sort of square jawed germans who would go i if you threw a grenade at mm. them that kind of thing donawetta yeah. eat lead fritz yeah and, yeah, and maiden yeah. aren't coming from rock and roll they're coming from that that's where maiden are coming from mm. so many of their songs are about war or enslavement and things like that well the world slavery tour every gig begins with uh, we shall fight them on the beaches the church right. speech exactly and mm. you know they've got that beer that mm. they sell trooper beer i mean it's got this, mm. this picture of, of eddie um in sort of military uniform eddie their mascot waving a tattered union jack and all of that looking like he's in the liberty <laughs> but maiden's attitude to the horrors of war is really ambiguous i think it's this kind of mix of disgust and glee right mm. there is this sort of craving for gore and mayhem among prepubescent boys isn't there and uh, mm. and and grown men who've never quite stopped being prepubescent boys and Maiden kind of have it both ways. That's their modus operandi here. Because, like, run to the hills, right? Run to mm. the hills. You can make a defence of it, saying it's this kind of excoriating critique of the genocide inflicted on the indigenous peoples of America. But mm. the relish, the sheer relish with which Dickinson rasps the, the words raping the women and wasting the men, right? Mm. That, that is mm. just made for the adolescent fans of Iron Maiden to, to punch the air, you know, drooling, like, yeah, rape, death, you know. <laughs> so you, you have mm. this kind of having it both ways thing. And I, I, I think in some ways I'm quite grateful to Iron Maiden because we live in a time now where metal and alternative music have kind of merged. Mm. Right? Yeah. And a lot of people think that metal is goth, goth is metal, and it's all part of this continuum. But for me, Maiden served this kind of useful reminder that metal was all about 
reinforcing patriarchy and, and hierarchy, all that royalist imagery and all that flag waving and, mm. you know, shall we say, traditional attitudes towards sexual equality. That stuff was never alternative, never cool. And metal existed for for weaklings, you know. Kids at my school who went to metal, they were not the tough kids. No. They were sort of acne-encrusted, bespectacled, runty kids, really. And they, they'd wear their leather jacket like a protective carapace, you know. Yes. And, and metal mm. allows them to live out these vicarious power fantasies that kind of stinky doddington rock allows them to feel hard and to feel tough mm. you know and I, th- I think that's what metal's all about and and all of that that i just said is is an opinion that i have and i sometimes try and suppress that and i you know i've got really good friends who are into metal like you know john doran um from the quietus gives talks about this about how great metal is and i think i'm going to be interviewing him at one of these talks nice. later in the year so this is going to be interesting <laughs> and i respect their view but i can't things like maiden make it so hard for me to get on board with it you know mm, um yeah i'll shut up for a bit and let david talk yeah let the rock expert have his say yeah i mean it, it's fucking rubbish isn't it i mean you know that's almost, <laughs> it's absolute fucking garbage <laughs> I mean, you've got, you know, these adolescent West Coast dreams. You know, they're wearing trousers that make spinal taps look positively semiotic. Mm. <laughs> Desperate rubbish. Absolute piss garbage. But, you know, I, I mean, I, I absolutely agree with everything that Simon says, you know, about the kind of, you know, the sense of trying to reimpose patriarchy, having a vicarious joy in war and rape and death, etc., etc. And it was felt like it was despised heavy metal. I, I suppose now the only way I look at it is that I see it as, Perhaps a sort of the equivalent to the, um, you know, World Wrestling Federation yeah. or something like that, yeah, you yeah. know, or whatever it is, WWE. Oh, careful, Al's going to come for you now. <laughs> it's part of me that kind of likes all of that. And I mean, I and I was always very much more, I became much more endeared towards heavy metal people. Oh, I never interviewed Iron Maiden. When I actually interviewed them, and it was like, bless you, you have something to say, you know, that you knew part of the job yeah, was entertainment. Yeah. And I suppose the most charitable thing I can think is that, like, all of these elements are there, but perhaps they're not necessarily insidious because everybody involved is aware that it's a fantasy perhaps at some level and it's just a way of getting the rocks off you know mm. i'm being around this time you know they're well established by this point but i just think that they feel that heavy metal will be taken more seriously there's a double standard there was an interview with steve harris around this time it was in an american magazine you know and he says like hey look somebody will go along and see a david bowie show and he brings on a big scary monster on stage <laughs> or something and they go it was wonderful it was very entertaining and everybody had a party and they go to an iron maiden concert we bring a big scary monster on and suddenly we're worshipping the devil mm. we're worshipping we're scaring small children or whatever particular bogey you want to lay at the door of music people love to lay at our door I mean first of all laying bogey at Steve Harris's door is a bit of a slightly <laughs> thing but you know I think that's idea that there's a sort of a double standard and that David Bowie is revered more than Iron Maiden is perhaps to do with things like you know Ziggy Stardust and the Berlin Trilogy and I don't think Iron Maiden produced quite an equivalent of all of that. Yeah. Around this time, I mean, 84, 85, and he used to like have mates who were heavy metal fans and fucking hell. We used to, um, used to call myself sweaties, they were called. Right. And there was no sweaty quite like a Yorkshire sweaty, I tell you. <laughs> I mean, piss-hurling, Cro-Magnon meatheads. Seriously, not even the missing link between man and ape, you know, but the missing link between ape and divot, you know. I mean, just <laughs> fucking awful, horrible people, actually. In fact, actually thinking about them makes me kind of, yeah, I'm beginning to kind of get my gander a bit like Pricey now, actually, now. 
now that I'm oh, thinking about these fucking drums. What's weird is, but it doesn't. It seems to be as, as Simon said. It's there's now sort of metal goth alternative, kind of sort of all merged into one. And you have got people like Sun, you know, who are kind of avant metal and, and, and are brilliant. You know, it's become kind of respectable. But I think that the, the sort of the, the crapness of an Iron Maiden. I don't. I don't know that there's an equivalent for that these mm. days. Um, certainly not on a kind of mass scale. You know, it's, it's like metal seems to be one of those in some respects a kind of slightly in, in the Iron Maiden sense a kind of extinct genre in some ways i don't know i mean people like rob zombie can fill the o2 i mean don't underestimate it mm. it is still fucking massive as, as, a, as a live thing yeah and you know if, if you look at this concert it's clearly a, a massive gig that they're playing but maiden can play those kind of venues still now yes they really can oh yeah but I, I just wonder if it's like a kind of new generations and new you know kids coming through i mean you know you never hear metal blasters out of an open top car no not around that end anyway no i don't know man i think it's still huge I mean, even by 1985, metal was passe. Yeah. I don't know, because metal is split into, into two directions uh, by the mid-80s. Uh, on the one hand, you had glam metal, that whole LA thing of yeah. you know, Motley Crue and Guns N' Roses and stuff like that. But you also had Thrash. Thrash was coming along at this time. Mm. You had the big four um, of mm. Thrash, who were Metallica, Megadeth, Anthrax and Slayer. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, yeah. I mean so, the new wave of British heavy metal. Oh, in Britain? Yeah. Well, the oh, thing that was, was the yeah. first... Yeah, the first Nawabum lot had actually started cracking America, as mm. as we see with Maiden. So basically, the, the two that really made it are Leopard and Maiden, mm. aren't they? You know, and Judas Priest. Mm. Yeah, did they? Right, okay. If you've not seen it, have a look at Heavy Metal Parking Lot. All right, which I believe was filmed round about this time before a Judas Priest concert, and it's just loads of youths drinking pissy beer and throwing up the devil horns and everything saying all rock and roll woo and then the bloke interviews them and he's you know he talks to one lad says oh what you what you up to now he says oh well i'm joining the army next weekend right yeah woo yeah yeah well uh, rock and roll the thing is with maiden is that there's no sex in their music i mean this this song is actually a really rare example where they talk about girls you know Mm. and that's because it's a song from their very early days written by paul yes where it's like pulled her at the bottle top whiskey dancing disco hop now all the boys are after me and that's the way it's gonna be yeah um but yeah it's quite rare for maiden to sing about something like that about girls because normally they they are mm. about war and death and in that respect yeah. they have more in common because there was this you know dichotomy that i spoke of in this split in 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 mid-80s metal um, even though they're not thrash um maiden have got more in common with slayer than yes. with Guns N' Roses or something like that because you mm. know Slayer famously sang these really dodgy questionable lyrics about uh, about the Nazi death camps where it's really not too clear that they disapprove let's put it that mm. way and you know as I said with, with Maiden they seem to really revel in the, the, the blood and gore of war Yeah. so mm. I, I think Maybe it's the same kind of mentality, just very different musically to bands like Slayer. As we've discovered, chaps, with Thin Lizzy and Motorhead, metal bands are very keen to put out live singles or EPs. And, you know, it's a win-win, isn't it? The fans get a souvenir of being wedged up against other people in denim and leather while having their senses assailed. And, Mm. you know, the band gets a knockout an old song as a single. But I'm detecting an ulterior motive here because, to me, this is Bruce Dickinson painting out the image 
Savage of Paul Diano <laughs> by covering the latter's own song and having a bigger hit with it. Yeah, like when Taylor Swift re-recorded all her albums mm. to obliterate mm. the earlier Taylor Swift. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's odd, though. Once again, I interviewed um, Martin Fry recently, mm-hmm. and he was talking about the very early days of ABC, you know, perhaps like Vice Versus Show ABC, and he was talking, I'm talking about, the, you know, the Sheffield scene. And I thought, you know, I might get him on to, like, you know, Clock DVA and Carrie Voltaire and people like that. And he says, oh, no, it was all right, you know. Um, yeah, the drummer from Saxon, he was great. He was a really good bloke. <laughs> you know, he really helped us out, you know, and he helped us out, gave us tips, you know, and all that kind of stuff, you know, gear and whatnot. And I was like, you fraternise with the foe, the enemy, the arch enemy. The idea, I've been absolutely horrified if I'd have known that Martin Fry was consorting with fucking oh, Saxon. Shoot that poison arrow through David's heart. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yes, yeah, Saxon, another example yeah. of a band we've talked about that I really enjoy sort of mm. reacquainting with, with them. There's just something mm. about Maiden that rubs him the wrong way. And it's probably the whole Brexit mm. thing. That's that's part of it as much as anything else. You know, yeah. fucking, all right, you know, he's obviously not a complete idiot. He can fly a plane, which is more than I can do, right? But I just don't <laughs> think Dickinson's the brightest bulb in the box because he mm. voted for Brexit and then he started complaining exactly, yeah. that... Uh, Brexit made it difficult for bands to tour. Like, what the fuck did you think was going to happen? Jesus Christ. As far as the video goes, it's your bog standard, you know, band on stage job. But they are singing live. They're not miming to anything. And as you'd expect in 1985, there is a lot of spandex on that stage. There is. And it kind of works in a metal band because, you know, it allows free and easy movement as Bruce Dickinson capers about and rests a foot on the monitors and the rest of the band um, just... I don't know, just stand about and lean forward when they're doing a solo. But it's not practical for the metal fan, is it? Wearing spandex. Because where are you going to put your keys? (laughs) You need to have a very big belt buckle which dickinson mm, does in order or to, a cod piece yes in order to hide you know um what's going on there because uh, they yeah. can be quite indecent um you mentioned the guitar solo um i don't know if you noticed and i, I think uh, it might have been david who described big country's bagpipe style as being the most pointless guitar innovation ever mm. but um maiden do this thing where the twin guitarists play exactly the same solo at exactly the same time yeah <laughs> it's just a really ridiculous stunt it's like it's like something out of ice skating more than rock and roll do you yeah, know yeah absolutely I mean? yeah. yeah yeah i also noticed there's someone in a really shit homemade eddie costume in the crowd did you see that yes <laughs> <laughs> it looked like the head was made out of foam from a, an old sofa or something mm. amazingly we don't see eddie in the yeah, video. Yeah. Oh, well. Because uh, by this time, he was a 30-foot sarcophagus because they were going for a very Egyptian theme for this. Uh, well, you know, maybe Michael Grade wouldn't have it. You know, didn't want to scare people. Yeah. By the way, yeah. chaps, do you know how spandex got its name? No. Because it expands? It Well, nearly, Simon. It's an anagram of expand. Oh, right, yeah, of course. And I was going to say that spandex would be superseded in the early 90s by Lycra, but did a bit of research. Actually, it turns out that Lycra is a brand name of a company that makes spandex, and, mm. and the term was adopted across the uh, industry to help the fabric move away from the image portrayed by bands such as Iron Maiden. That's what I thought, because I got right into the Lycra game in the late 80s, let me tell you. Did you know? Yeah, yeah, when I arrived in London and started going on the goth scene, because the thing with PVC or leather trousers is, they're never tight enough, you know? Yeah. If, if you wanted shiny but sort of drainpipe-like legs, there was no point getting PVC or, or leather because they, they were just all sort of flaccid and 
baggy and saggy so what you needed was lycra so yeah. I, I would buy these 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 lycra leggings and um and, and people would say to me oh nice spandex you got going on oh, what, mm. what, what, what are you talking about never, never heard of spandex <laughs> but yeah it turns out it's exactly the same fucking thing yeah did it help reduce our sweat at clubs i mean i couldn't possibly comment <laughs> is it better or worse than uh, pvc i mean it's better for the sweat point of view you haven't got to put talcum powder down it or anything like that better at wicking it tucks nicely into your sort of little pixie boots with uh, with, with skulls for buckles put it that way <laughs> and where um, did you yeah. put your keys that would be revealing too much okay. um, <laughs> yeah yeah I'd, I'd, I'd always have like a, a leather jacket or something that, that was the trouble with it yeah you, you've got nowhere to put things yeah um i, I tell you what, I, what i've come up with now is, as the solution to that problem is a sporran i've got this kind of fetish sporran <laughs> right. it's, it's a black pvc sporran that, that i got from a kind of fetish wear retailers and it's, it's perfect for that kind of thing if you're wearing a garment which doesn't allow stashing of your keys yeah a sporran is your friend so yeah. there's, there's there's a fashion tip for the pop craze youngsters. Anything else to say? Nah. Seriously, fuck Iron Maiden, man. What? Who's what that? Fuck Neil, is that? what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> Fuck's sake. I did under the desk. My metal dial was twitching, man. I, I heard Maiden <laughs> chat, and I cannot let it pass without sticking my tup in a thin. There's something wrong with you, man. I'm calling the police. <laughs> <laughs> Every time the subject of Maiden has come up, Neil said he can't wait to get stuck into him. Who am I to deny a lad his opportunity? So come on, Neil. He's rising up like the Coventry Maiden troll. <laughs> <laughs> it needs saying man it needs saying um no for me to be honest with you i massively agree with simon and david on this i have right. to say that the maiden like say their american equivalent would be i don't know wasp or something they're that right. point they're that marking point as simon was kind of saying that i needed metal they're a kind of mark off point that says you know just stop you've gone too right. far you know, my, my daughter, as previously explained, is quite a retro metalhead, and she burns yeah. a lot of CDs for the car called uh, Poisonous Metal. We're actually up to volume 12 now. Um, and they've pushed things into my life, you know, that if you'd have told me back in the metal 80s... Metal for daughters. Spoke <laughs> <laughs> <from> D-A-U-T-A. <laughs> <laughs> but they've pushed things into my life. You know, if you'd have told me back in the 80s that I'd be earnestly sort of singing along to these things in my car in my 50s, I'd have seen that as a colossal diff feet mm. in my life really you know oh, so quiet riot except scorpions michael shanker group <laughs> <laughs> all of them you know tigers of pantang witch find um you know walpurgis night by storm witch these, storm these witch. Are all things that i i now sort of dig but she peppers these compilations i mean she put on one kiss track on one of them and i just oh. i'm not having that one that one could just comes out the cd yeah. player as soon as it gets to that but she does pepper these compilations with maiden tracks which, which right. only ever sort of kicks off arguments <laughs> All of which eventually end up with me, you know, just driving down the A45 with my thumb down like the audience for Spinal Tap's Jazz Odyssey. <laughs> and, 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 and me getting a dead arm, you know? But, I mean, as I patiently explain to her, maiden suck. And, and I use that Americanism carefully because I think mm. something Simon said, there's a real incipient 
Americanization of so many aspects of metal's revival and rehabilitation in recent years. Mm. It's entirely along kind of American lines of fandom that I would suggest, yeah, include wrestling. Also include the kind of consumption of hot sauces, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. y- y- you can trace a lot of it back to Wayne's World and, and Bill and Ted, I think. Um, mm. But the, the reason I really don't like Maiden, and I cannot get along with Maiden, despite an awful lot of dreadful metal shit being sort of rehabilitated in my mind, well, it's several reasons. I mean, Simon's mentioned the kinds of the, the, the warfare aspect of Maiden. And, and, you know, metal obviously uses a lot of warfare imagery from sort of war pigs onwards, you know? Mm. Um, and through bands like, like Thin Lizzy, who obviously Maiden are taking musical and lyrical ideas from. But Maiden's obsession with military stuff, it never becomes critical. Mm. in a kind of war pigs or emerald style it's firmly a sort of really celebratory boys own airfix view of history yeah. um, mm. because it's for those kind of boys who would have you know collected a 24 part series by Orbis on tanks of the eastern <laughs> front or something you know? it's that Sven Hassel IE thing as Simon said and, and yeah. you know that obviously feeds into Diano and, and Dickinson's Brexitness and right wingery and that's why Maiden sleeves and, uh, and Eddie becomes this flag shagging thing. This, there's, the Union Jack is often on Maiden product, whether it's terrible, awful yeah. wallets in shops called Fantasy and Reality or, or, <laughs> or Trooper Beer. You know, they're like the UKIP of metal. Oh, yes. And, and, and beyond, mm. beyond the politics, beyond the politics, just sonically, uh, you know, th- there's often this thing, you know, Maiden or Priest, and I love Priest, right? And, yeah. and unlike Priest, who they're often contrasted and compared to, Maiden just don't groove. They can only gallop. That's mm. all they can do. They have this sort of giddy-up kind of rhythm to their music, <laughs> which, which, which really reflects that this is metal now entirely shorn of the sort of blues or, or black music influences that fed into bands like Zeppelin and Sabbath. Yeah. Uh, so that they're smiths of metal. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's something to that. There's definitely something to that. You could argue it was Priest that really birthed heavy metal by melding kind of prog with heavy rock and these sort of heavily arpeggiated twin guitars that are kind of a metal a signal, if you like. But Priest how can I put it they, they always just had plenty of arse to their sound they always had a groove Maiden are all about the treble and, and the kind of detail mm, and they're right. much more engaged with kind of proving their chops in a really entirely sort of European almost classical kind of way it leaves me cold and, mm. and it's perfect for metal boys and, and you know Maiden uh, uh, exclude women in all kinds of ways not only from their audience but also from their music but it's perfect for metal boys to feel because you know the, the metal boys want to feel that metal is the best music because you know to play an instrument that fast etc <laughs> but, yes. but if you're out of metal subculture and you're aware of pop in any way, it made them feel really cold and undanceable. They're kind of headbangable but not danceable. Uh, and, mm. and consequently at the time, you know, in the 80s, among my few friends, Maiden were the band clung to by the most sort of squalid of my friends. How can I put it? <laughs> yeah. The, the friends who made swords and played D&D and, yeah. and, and, and that. Mm. And, and, you know, and even the, back then, those guys, I gave a wide berth to because they kind of stank and I didn't want to get nicked. <laughs> and stuff <laughs> so it's that side of metal and, and finally I mean really awful awful front men for Maiden and you know mm. you, the, the front man is, is, kind of decides whether you like a band or not quite often yeah. you know I mean the first singer benefits cheap 
Paul Diano. He was a nasty piece of work. Um, and his lyrics, I mean, if you dig into lyrics for Killers or Murders in the Rue Morgue, you know, they, they show a really appalling attitude to women and violence against women. And, mm. and beyond that, Diano's a total fantasist. I mean, there, there's a fantastic quote from Diano in Michael Hamm's oral history of Nawabaham, Denim and Leather, right. where he's recalling one of Maiden's early shows at the, the Music Machine. And he goes, um, you know, the direct quote, he goes, uh, we went up there and we had Kate Bush up on stage with us. I remember yeah. that. I was seeing her at the time. Oh, my God. Um, mm. He's like the Aldridge Pryor hopeless liar. <laughs> it, 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 yeah. I mean, to, Han, to Michael Hans' credit, he swiftly follows that quote up with a quote from Murray Charmer, Kate Bush's PR, which just flatly says, you know, <laughs> Kate, Kate doesn't know that guy and has never been on stage at the music machine. And then there's a good quote, there's a good quote straight after as well from Malcolm Dome, which says, you know, it didn't happen. I was there. It didn't happen. But I think he genuinely believes the stuff he comes out with. He lives in a fantasy world to some extent. So, you know, there's Diano problems. Dickinson is just this awful Brexit sort of top gear adjacent Mm. cunt, isn't he? And Mm. the thing is, with the other and the Wobbaham bands, the front men were really... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns key in those bands appeal i think you know whether it's saxon's mm. uh, bill bifford's sort of being just dead funny or just the magnificent rob halford you know that these guys are mm. hilariously kind of unembarrassable and lovable because of it and it's kind of wonderful yeah. that these people who are essentially fans of glam rock really became stars whereas with maiden from the moment they started there's just this feel of management and business really guiding them to the top that they're, mm. they're signed in the early days because when emi comes see them play in the middle of a bill that also included uh, White Spirit and Angel Witch um, Maiden <laughs> for that show they knew that EMI were coming and they bought tons of pyro and they kind of secured that record deal there's something cold and calculating about Maiden you know the, the band themselves yeah. when they used to get on their leathers and their kind of clothes and spandex and stuff they used to call dressing up for the shows getting on the cunt kit and um, I'm guessing on the cunt kit and I think that kind of re- I mean it's funny but it kind of reveals something about them and their attitude to their audience so for all those reasons I kind of proudly state fuck Maiden and fuck Dickinson and fuck this kind of sexless grooveless B.O. rock mm. Mm. in 1984 I mean Simon's mentioned the big four you know the big four thrash bands swinging that, that was where I was listening to in metal and, and really the major impact Maiden had in my life in 85 was probably I mean this is three years short of, of Nico McBrain's drum battle with Sooty don't forget um, <laughs> oh, yes. but, you know their major impact is them soundtracking you know Daily Time Thompson, I'm going to swig a Lucas eight. Oh, yes! In the advert. No! No, 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 no! <laughs> Indeed. 
voiced by fellow Brexiteer, you know, Des Lynham. So, yeah, no, fuck Maiden, man. Metal and athletics, man. Not two things you'd naturally put together. No, not at all. I mean, later on in the uh, noughties, of course, we do get a kind of sports metal. Ooh. Horrific. Yes. Um, but, yeah, no, at this period, no. I mean, yeah, the metal fans were the, the, the guys at the back of the cross-country, you know? They're, they're yes. walking. <laughs> <laughs> um, with some soap bar on the go or something. You know? yes. <laughs> I got someone I want to ask Neil. In fact, mm-hmm. um, it's kind of um, a question. Oh, by the way, the, the police are on their way. Don't you worry about that for your breaking. <laughs> um, yeah, what it is, it's, it's a question in two parts. Don't you fucking hate it when, when someone does that, by the way, mm. a Q, a Q&A. It's like, um, a question in two parts. The, the only thing worse than that is if, if they say, um, not so much a question, more of an observation. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, what what is this? This um, I I said that you know metal in general and Maiden in particular are all about these sort of male power fantasies. Mm, and mm. you said yourself, you know, it's it's all about it's boys, it's stinky boys are into this. <laughs> Your daughter loving this music is the kind of hole in my argument. And I, I wondered. Mm. And here's the two parts. First of all, mm. how do you explain that? And secondly when she started showing an interest in this kind of music did you feel like a bit of a failure as a parent (laughs) (laughs) no the thing is the thing is right i i I know sort of uh, uh, you can't fail as a parent i mean i i think as a parent you just got to kind of let your kids get into what the fuck they want to get into you know what i mean Um, and not guide it in any way whatsoever so it is thrilling when her and then cut them out of your will (laughs) (laughs) no it's nice you know when their own reconnaissance sort of loops around with you to a certain extent but but you're mm. right there there is an odd thing because not many how can i put it when she listens to to stuff like made and when she listens to songs like murders in the room or killers which are quite misogynistic in a way i think the mm. place she puts it in her head is purely alongside horror um, a, a, as a genre um, mm. both in literature and in film so she's watching giallo movies well she is she's watching horrifically violent shit to be honest with you <laughs> you know my daughter when I walk in the front room the telly suddenly goes muted and, and stops fuck uh. only knows what she's watching she's watching a lot of really gruesome shit but I think she sees it as it doesn't speak to her as a kind of like you know I want to go out and do that to women or I want to go that out and be that violent for her it's kind of in a sense yeah pure fantasy and just a, an evocation of violence but yeah it is problematic because like we the major thing that i always say in the car when she's punching my arm saying maiden are great is but they're so fucking brexit <laughs> and and that's important to her she's like no no they're not brexit anymore he's apologized if she uh-huh. knows that i don't know a singer is right wing or a trump supporter or doesn't agree with her politics she rapidly falls out of love with that band um she's had right. to rationalize it in her head that maiden Maiden, you know, aren't Brexit. Bruce has apologised, etc. Um, you know, to, to, to be into it. So, yeah, yeah. It, I, I don't feel embarrassed that she's playing fucking Stormwitch or has convinced me of the, the value of the Scorpions. <laughs> she's inspired much more by women in metal, I think, than she is by, by all the blokes. As opposed to women in uniform! <laughs> <laughs> but did, but did, yeah. did Bruce sorry, did Bruce Dickinson apologise or did he just moan about the consequences of Brexit? I think that was it. He, yeah. he kind of, he said, yeah, yeah, he moaned about its impact on touring bands, didn't yeah. he? So, yeah. I'm sticking to my girl 
sons. I don't care. She can keep giving me a dead arm. <laughs> but but th- those political problems haven't shoved Maiden out of her listening because musically they appeal to her, I guess. But the, yeah, the groovelessness, it's, it's, it's a constant sticking point with me and Save that Kiss fucking suck and Maiden suck. And, and yeah, I will never, ever retract those opinions because they're true. Maybe she, I think she'll grow out of them. I am. Mm. And wasn't it totally unsurprising that about 20 years ago when metal t-shirts became fashionable and were in Topshop, mm. it was Iron Maiden? Yeah, and it still is. You can still get Maiden t-shirts in places like Primark and stuff like that because it's yeah. an instant signifier or something. But people... I've got to say, I mean, Maiden, of course, are still selling out big stadiums and stuff like that. But in terms of the records I'd still keep from that period, um, they're the worst. And, and, and you know, mm. there's no place for women in their music. Maiden never sing love songs or sex songs. There's no place for sex in their music either. Because the boys no. that they're appealing to are not having sex. So <laughs> they don't want to hear about a front man who is having sex. They want to hear about a front man who is obsessed with their small, you know, wank sock world. Uh, warfare and horror movies and all of that mm. I, I, I always remember the boys that I used to teach um, I used to teach them gaming uh, they used to want to be games designers right. they were horrible and hateful and, and kind of right wing um, in that way that alternative culture has got a bit right wing in, in recent mm. years but I, I always remember kind of stepping out of the room to go and have a fag and, and coming back to this room of these ten metal boys and fuck me it just stank I know that's a prejudice <laughs> and it's kind of a cliched prejudice mm. but, but, but it's that, true but it's true and, and it you know I mean t- look teenage boys are pretty gruesome mm. in, in it, whatever they're into but um, yeah, yeah that, that, that kind of horrible squalid grubbiness of the the fans of maiden in particular it's it's an undeniable truism i think and and Mm. it percolates into their music priest for instance as another metal band of the period they're writing really quite interesting songs you can hear halford you know having to cover up his gayness um so that songs like breaking the law etc are kind of reflective of something really really interesting Mm. whereas Mm. maiden are just unproblematically telling little boys that yeah um their tiny penises matter and Mm. you know (laughs) women are all bitches etc you know so so it's kind of unretrievable yeah although you know the 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 horned hand and and all of the other americanized kind of aspects of metal culture now seem to be dragging everything back into the fold in terms of their influence on other metal bands yes you you, of course you're going to hear most metal people saying yeah um maiden were important but in terms of their influence i don't hear it much in modern metal yeah a teenage dirtbag well you weren't listening uh, to june as priest no no but mm. i mean yeah in that particular war priest win hands down and and mm. yeah made into this grooveless kind of you know the way alan freeman used to pepper his kind of show this friday rock show with flourishes of classical music um yeah. made in a very much on that side of things they've got no groove because they're not really coming mm. from a heavy rock background uh, by which i mean something that's informed at least tangentially by R&B or something they're coming purely they listen to Lizzie they listen to these widdly 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 bands and all they got yeah. was the whittle they didn't listen to the to the groove yes. underneath it mm. 
I feel really grateful to Neil for this. I feel like he's kind of sort of <laughs> fastidiously dissected and examined this enormous great turd, you know, which I just sort of like flushed from my kind of. He's the Gillian McKeith of chart music. Yes. No, you know, you know, we've we've said in the past that ev- that everything ends up rehabilitated. Um, we've we've had discussions in the past that you know why is Toto's Africa now considered a classic? Oh, God, it's yeah. this thing that the passage mm. of time happens, and because those old things that people are into are just sort of charming and quaint um, they end up getting rehabilitated but Maiden mm. th- should not be rehabilitated their, their music their music's dreadful mm. <laughs> and then it always was yeah. and, and you know I knew this as a child I knew this when even when Number of the Beast came out I thought how dare you exploit Omen for your <laughs> for your mercenary <laughs> ends <laughs> so yeah no a cold calculating and somewhat unmoving band Maiden you are not wrong to dislike them Good. Thank you. <laughs> so the following week, Running Free would only manage a one place jump to number 19, its highest position. The follow up, a live version of Run to the Hills, became the Christmas number 26, while Live After Death entered the LP chart at number 2, held off the summit of Albenberg by Love Songs by George Benson on K Tow. And of course, the original version was used to devastating effect as the soundtrack to the Maiden Minute in In Bed with Chris Needham, <laughs> where manslaughter take time out from the stress of being Loughborough's top-ranked thrash metal band by running down a school corridor, wrapping sellotape round Chris's little brother's head and filming themselves having a big waz into a toilet. Hello! <laughs> We're drinking! <laughs> Thank you very much, Neil. See you down the line, brother. No, we're totally See you, Neil. And while Neil's being ejected from the premises, I think it's a good time to stop there, catch his breath, and come back hard tomorrow for part three of Chart Music 72. So, on behalf of David Stubbs and Simon Price, this is Al Needham asking you nice to stay Pop crazed. Chart music. Hey, pop crazed youngster. Do you love chart music but hate London? Do you want to see our new live show but would sooner stop a tum and doss about in your pants on a sat there? Are you going to our live show but want to see it again and again and again and again for a week or so? Well, it seems to me like you need to get booked into our live stream at this year's London Podcast Festival. See that keyboard, use those fingers, mash out tinyearl.com slash cmlive23, all lowercase. Step up to the pay window, lay your money down and get ready to see Team ATV Land throw down live and direct on Saturday, September the 16th. That link again, tinyearl.com slash cmlive23, all lower case. Come on, pop craze youngsters, stick that money down this G-string and watch Team ATV Land grind and thrust just for you. No wanking, though, okay?